I'm Joe Jordan. Hi. Hi, and our intern is Tommy Martin, standing by. Coming up this hour, how will plants survive wild swings in climate that are expected in the next century? We'll have an interview with University of California Environmental Studies Professor Michael Loik about his studies on drought and plant life in California. If you want to register a question for our guests ahead of time, you can contact us at radioplanetwatch at gmail.com. And as we do every day on the program, we are going to have a quick news roundup of some of the stories of our planet. And then we'll be back with an interview with Michael right after that. So stay tuned to Planet Watch right here on your public radio station. Hi, Joe. So do you have a story for us to kick us off on our amazing well, newscast Well, let's day? see here. I'm going to just start with the big news of the week. Down in the Antarctic, uh, if you look at a globe at the so-called bottom of the globe and look at the great white continent, you'll see this one thin piece that sticks up towards Chile and the, and the southern tip of South America. That's called the Antarctic Peninsula. And, um, well, there's this huge chunk of the Larsen C ice shelf, Larsen spelled L-A-R-S-E-N, Larsen A and B have already broken off in previous years. But this uh, is just about to become the one of the like top three or four icebergs in all of human history. Uh, there's a gigantic crack that's been developing going at a rate of about five football fields in length a day. For the last couple of weeks, it just went almost 20 miles, and it's got 20 more miles to go before that whole piece of the Larsen Sea ice shelf breaks off. Now, there will still be a bunch of the Larsen Sea ice shelf left, but the ice shelf, which is you know frozen water that has run off from glaciers, and it has performs a buttressing function that helps keep the on-land glaciers from accelerating into the ocean and thereby really seriously raising sea level, like at our doorsteps here on the western edge of the North American continent. Um, so when this thing breaks off, this little piece of the Larsen Sea ice shelf, it's not going. It's already floating ice, so it's not going to affect the sea level, but it will uh, remove a significant amount of the force that has been keeping the on-land glaciers from racing into the ocean. So, um, yeah, that's uh, l later on <laughs> when the really big ice starts moving into the ocean after all the blocking from the Larsen Sea has been removed, that's going to be big trouble everywhere. So, uh, in the next couple of weeks, you'll probably hear the news about this huge chunk of the Lar Larsen Sea ice shelf having broken off. All right, and Thursday of this last week, the Trump administration issued a ruling to delay putting a major pollinator, the rusty-patched bumblebee, on the endangered species list. There's a little-known rule that allows uh, government officials to extend the deadline. This bee was about to be listed, and it is said to be down to 10% of its normal range. But rather than ban pesticides, the neonicotinoids responsible in part for the bee die-offs, researchers have turned to guess this, machines, to take the bee's place in the food chain. In Japan, researchers are pollinating lilies with insect-sized mechanical drones. The undersides of these artificial pollinators are coated with horse hairs and an ionic gel just sticky enough to pick up pollen from one flower and deposit it onto another. The drone's designers are hopeful that their invention could someday help carry the burden that modern agricultural demand has put on colonies and other demands as well. <clears throat> so the bees are left 
that are left can take a break from all that hard work. And we want to thank Science Daily for that story. I guess you could retitle it Drones for Drones. Y- you want to know my one-word opinion of that story and what it... Can you uh, say that on the radio? Pathetic. <laughs> pathetic. I really hope it doesn't come to that. I mean, that's unbelievable. Yeah, those are two separate stories, but I put them together because on one hand you're delisting an endangered bee that actually is responsible for us being here. All the rise of modern agriculture is partly in in part due to bees pollinating various important crops that we eat. We humans uh, rely on bees very, very significantly to survive. Um, So on that very happy note, Tommy has a story. (laughs) Another exciting... Yeah, more more fun stuff. According to the Washington Post uh, this Friday, temperatures at the North Pole spiked nearing 50 degrees warmer than normal. Analysis by the Northern Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration showed temperatures at the northernmost land station in the world, located at Greenland, shot up 43 degrees Fahrenheit in just 12 hours. That's surpassing the melting point. These extreme temperature increases have occurred multiple times in both the past two winters, whereas they only occurred once or twice per decade in historical records. Speechless. Yeah. We're talking Fahrenheit there too, right? 50 yes. degrees Fahrenheit, which in centigrade would be a smaller number, but that's a huge uh, huge temperature spike up yeah, there. Yeah, I think I read that it would be something like 80 degrees in New York in the middle of winter that's in comparison. Deal. Yeah, pretty big deal going on up there. Meanwhile... On other parts of the world, or similar parts of the world, Joe, you had another uh, piece of news from Antarctica, and we were lucky to have Franz Lanting last week talk to us about what he saw, his eyewitness report of Antarctica, and I believe you have something about the Larsen Ice Oh, that's the one I just did, actually. Oh, wow. <laughs> so. I must have been busy thinking about pollinators. I'm so sorry. It was such a big story, it might be worth repeating, but <laughs> stay well, tuned. Well, this is related, for- actually. So... If you've been kept up at night worrying about the massive release of methane gas hydrate, um, which are these ice crystals that are on the bottom of the ocean, from the ocean floor that could potentially cause a catastrophic tipping point for rapid runaway global warming, well, you can rest a bit easier at night. A new study of the scientific literature on methane hydrates at the University of Rochester suggests that when these deposits do melt, most remain in the ocean sediment and do not make it to the atmosphere and that the amount of methane being released from these deep water deposits is dwarfed by human-caused methane releases. Methane is a powerful greenhouse gas, and many people for a while thought that the massive releases of these methanes could cause runaway uh, global warming. So that's one piece of small good news, maybe dwarfed by other bad news that we just heard, but nonetheless, um, that one particular source of massive methane has been seen to be less uh, dangerous than perhaps the release of carbon from soils, which was not factored in until recently. So who knows if those two things actually uh, cancel each other out. Yeah, the methane monster lurking in the deep uh, may have gotten us 250 million years ago during the Great Permian extinction, which was one of the greatest or worst mass extinctions in the history of uh, the living world uh, that could have been from massive releases of methane from the deeps among other places but they just Uh, said in the story that actually they don't think that's going to happen or is happening well i'm just saying 250 million years ago it it did i think well this (laughs) might call that into question because this is a study of 50 different studies that suggests that um 
it's released, but it's not going all the way to the atmosphere. It's staying in the deep, yeah, which is that, a good thing. Yeah, for now, yeah, that's good for now. For <laughs> it now, wasn't good we're back safe then. for the next million years, unless something else hits us. All right, um, so we that's our news roundup for now, and we are going to shift our attention to our guest, who's kindly uh, agreed to come in in person today into the studio. His name is Michael Loik, and Michael is a assistant professor at the University of California, Santa Cruz, who has done a lot of studying of how plants survive extreme circumstances. And as we're sitting here in California, we have come out of a very long drought, and so I imagine what you learned, perhaps studying plants during this drought, Michael, may have taught us something about what to expect in extreme swings of climate. Maybe you could just start out by um, giving us some highlights of what you studied and what you learned. Hey, Rachel, hang on. Can you give out the uh, email address uh, for hey. people to email us at? Tommy could give it out, or I could, or you could. It's Planet Watch, <laughs> yeah. Radio, Planet Watch Radio at gmail.com. Actually, it's Radio Planet Watch, isn't it? <laughs> Radio Planet well, Watch at gmail.com. <laughs> you knew it all along. You just wanted to hear me say it wrong. Well, <laughs> you're the boss. <laughs> Apparently not. Um, let's say it again. RadioPlanetWatch at gmail.com. That's how we communicate so far. Someday we may take calls on this station or we may prearrange certain calls, but right now it's all by email. So Tommy's watching the monitor closely. Mm -hmm. And I'm you on. can ask a question of our guest while he's here. So, Michael, back to the original question. Um, tell us a little bit about why you were studying um, the particular plants you looked at and what are some of the findings that you found? Sure, thanks. Um, well, we, we've been looking at how plants respond to the water in their environment uh, and the temperature and uh, pollutants and air quality and so on. Um, and and as, you, as you mentioned, there's been a pretty notable drought here in California. In fact, it was a one in 1200 year drought that was determined by, by others using tree rings. And so that's, uh, you know, if you think about, try to put this into perspective from say, for example, the last glacial period, which the maximum was about 18,000 years ago. So the plants and animals in California have faced this kind of drought maybe 15 times um, in that period. So since the last ice age, um, there have been some opportunities for vegetation to, to experience this kind of uh, conditions. So uh, as, as you know, and I'm sure many of your listeners know, there are many, many dead trees across the state of California. A couple years ago, they, uh, the estimate was 66 million trees. And then last year, that, that uh, estimate was revised and increased to 107 million trees. And, and those trees were, of course, impacted by the drought, but there were many things happening at the same time as drought. So there are beetles that uh, affect trees. They get under the bark and they create these little tunnels called galleries and that cuts off the flow of sugars from the needles of conifer trees down to their roots where they need those sugars to stay alive. And so the trees kind of slowly starve to death in, in addition to drying out. And wasn't it also that we didn't get cold enough to kill them off, that there were a double whammy, both the stress from the drought and also the beetles themselves survive a whole winter if it doesn't get cold enough, right? Right, and it's actually maybe even a triple or quadruple whammy because in addition to the beetles, the beetles carry around a fungus that they feed on, that their offspring feed on, and the fungus helps to clog up the trees as well. So there are multiple things happening at once. Dang beetles! And then, <laughs> and then when there's a fire on top of that, they still feed on the dead trees, right? So now sure, they've got sure. all kinds of yummy things to eat. Well, so, they, the beetles won this story. I mean, you know, 
the beetles and the drought and the lack of cold and the fungus and m- multiple things. So if you were rooting together. for the beetles, you would have had a, a win there. <laughs> I got a related question just from my own experience up there. I have a friend who's got a cabin right in Kings Canyon National Park. It was grandfathered in in a little village called Wilsonia that was established during the reign of Woodrow Wilson. Uh, it's a mile from the Grant Grove of Giant Sequoias. And on the way up there now, the last uh, just in the last year or two, you know, more than half of the trees are red and dead mm-hmm. all through there. And I kind of wonder about, like, massive fires that are inevitably going to be sweeping through there. Uh, you were studying more in the eastern Sierra, I think, but I'm sure you know about that part sure, of it. Sure, and, and that effect is going gonna, is gonna to happen throughout the state, not just in the Sierra or on the east side or the west side. But, yeah, those trees that are still standing, they're dead and they're uh, standing fuel waiting to burn. Um, and, uh, and so that is obviously uh, an issue. And so certain land management agencies all the way up on to the state are trying to determine what to do with those trees, either leave them there or take them down and turn them into biochar or uh, some other mechanism for carbon sequestration. And so if this is not just a California problem. I remember driving last summer through Idaho and you could almost not walk in any of the trails in the sawtooths because there were so many trees down mm. everywhere. So I don't mm. think, it, I think it's the entire West. The, yeah. You know, various parts of the West, all the way from the Midwest, there was a huge drought in 2012 that impacted uh, agriculture in the Midwest, uh, all the way through to the West Coast at some, some time or another, you know, parts of the country are, are under drought stress. And, and most recently it was our turn. So if drought is such a natural um, recurring thing, um, you would think that this is just the natural swing and sway of evolution and that these, even if it looks like half the forest is gone, that's part of a natural process or are we seeing something outside of the range of fluctuation that used to happen all the time in California? Well, it, Or do we know? <laughs> there, are, there are different ways to try and approach that question. One is to use computer models to try and uh, ask questions about what-if type questions. What if there wasn't three, you know, over uh, 400 parts per million of uh, CO2 in the atmosphere and other greenhouse gases? And using that kind of, a, of an analysis and taking the anthropogenic or the human influence out of the atmosphere, one group found that, in fact, that drought would be a lot less likely to, to occur. So there was mm-hmm. some evidence from that computer modeling approach that that humans uh, had, uh, you know, had a role. Um, but you were talking earlier about um, how evolution plays a role. And, you know, and some vegetation is quite resilient or resistant to these kinds of stresses, and whether they're natural or or from um, human activities. And so, for example, with some of the plants that I work with on the east side of the Sierra Nevada, they have very deep roots that allow them to utilize water that is soaked into the soil in prior very wet years. So like this year will probably be a very good year for for hydrating the soil that um, plants can, can utilize in upcoming droughts. I was sitting across yesterday at dinner from um, my well guy, and he was very happy. I said, is this good for the aquifer? And he said, oh, this is the kind of year California's been waiting for. Let's go back to fire ecology a little bit. Imagine the east side of the Sierra has seen some big forest fires. Um, Are the fires we see now different in some way um, in their effect on the existing plant life than say before we started to suppress them do they kill more things even down through the soil or the fire, is it the, also natural yeah. process yeah the fires they tend to be bigger 
um, and and they're they're requiring more and more of the of the of the budget of the Forest Service and other land management agencies to to deal with these fires on the ground and afterwards, whether it's you know, cleanup or restoration of vegetation. Um, uh, and, and they do have, so a, a more intense fire can have uh, a greater impact on the ecosystem in terms of how it will respond afterwards uh, and whether it turns to one type of vegetation or another, particularly if there are invasive species mixed into the picture. I heard at one point in California history there was some huge drought, they think, maybe a couple hundred years. Can you talk about that and what we learned from studying, I guess, tree rings? Um, I heard the Native Americans just sort of moved out of California, some of them. They just left because it was too long. You know, it was, seemed like mm. lifetimes. I, I think the, well, I guess maybe the, the biggest message that comes from some of that work, uh, which uh, perhaps is... Uh, we should all be paying attention to is that you know these kinds of droughts these multi-decade droughts are not unusual in california you know and so we've only been here you know two three hundred years or more thousands of years but uh in terms of recent recorded history um we haven't faced one of those and so uh and, and so it it's a really important question. I mean, how would we adapt as a society to something like that? Los Angeles probably would move to Seattle. <laughs> but how would we even do that? Right. Well, it's, we're a lot more settled. I mean, nomadic peoples wasn't quite as big of a deal to go, you know, we just have to move somewhere where there's more water. Right. But now we have or houses bring, in Or the, bring the water to the, to the people. Yeah. Well, how about that Nelson ice shelf? You just towed it up here. Or Larson. Yeah. Larson. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> just get a tow rope. There was some funny talk about that at one point, you know, towing an iceberg down here from the <laughs> Arctic. Right. I don't think that quite worked out so well because it was going to melt on the way way down. But we are getting a little away from plants. It's amusing stuff, you know. Yeah, well, what about the wild swings? I mean, you know, one of the things about this climate chaos, as I call it, uh, is, you know, drought to deluge and back maybe uh and this big rain this year you know it's sort of a pleasant surprise although maybe too much of a good thing and there's more coming later this week by the way after a few nice days we're having here on the west coast but um you know uh, could this be kind of the last hurrah for the rains before we really do get a century of drought or you know uh, another um, uh climate scientist at UCSC, uh, Lisa Sloan, she was one of the first to talk about how the Sierra would be getting less and less snow. I mean, this year they're getting a ton of snow, but of course, even if you have the same kind of high precip, if you get higher temperatures also at altitude, you're going to be getting a lot more rain and a lot less snow with all the attendant negative effects for way more than just the ski industry, <laughs> you know, storage in reservoirs and gradual predictable runoff and not mudslides and erosion all over the place. That's when you have it normal with lots of snowpack. <laughs> but we could be looking at all those other things I just said. But, but what, you know, you know a lot about how plant ecosystems can respond to both deluge and drought. In fact, your studies kind of uh, uh, set up comparisons of lower than normal and then higher than normal soil moisture. And tell us a little bit about what, what's known about all that stuff. Okay, well, um, as you mentioned, we, we've uh, started off talking about the 1 in 1200 year drought, and now here we are with a uh, one of the wettest Januaries in, I think, like 80 years. 
and and so we are going from very dry conditions in 2015 in Mammoth Pass. There was uh, zero inches of snow on April 1st when the Department of Water Resources measures the snowpack, and that's the first time since 1928 that that's ever happened. And now here we are two two winters later, and we have tremendous amounts of snow out there. There's some trees that my uh, research team monitors year in and year out at about 10,000 feet near Mammoth Lakes, and those are currently under 40 feet of snow. I'm not even sure we're going to see those trees this year if it'll actually melt in time when, for when we're there this summer. But uh, so the questions are: How how do plants and uh, and ecosystems and and animals and how will society respond to these wild swings of weather? Uh, tremendous drought for several years, followed by. Um, uh, incredible amounts of rain and snow. Um, and, and you prefaced your question by asking about whether this was the last hurrah for rain for the next hundred years. And <laughs> there's really no way to really kind right. of answer that. The, our computer models are, are not really equipped for uh, answering those kinds of questions. But I think the one question that we should kind of think about is whether these kinds of wild swings are part of a new normal and and how, how we might respond how vegetation will respond. Uh, you know, plants and animals have a, have a few options. They can adapt or they can, they can evolve. They can uh, adjust physiologically or they can move. Um, and then, um, and so, you know, we need to also ask how, how we will uh, respond to these kinds of uh, greater swings because they're expensive. We had a lot of uh, um, financial costs to the agricultural industry during the drought. And now we have tremendous amounts of, uh, of costs that are going to have to be absorbed uh, in regard to responding to all this rainfall and mudslides and power outages and, and everything else. We um, often hear from critics of doing things uh, about climate change that it's too expensive and that the costs, you know, have to be borne by somebody and who's supposed to bear those. And when you mention public roads, <laughs> things that we pay as taxpayers, there's already a huge expense in responding after the fact to weather events that are becoming more extreme, as you say. So um, what's the answer to that? Is there a way to reduce the expenses on the back end by front-loading some of these solutions? Sure, and uh, that's a, an excellent question. And, you know, I think what we also have to recognize is the... Um, the benefits that accrue from some of those investments and uh, so in, in many cases uh, there can be some no regrets aspects that if you do these things you're going to be doing good things anyways that are just going to uh, uh, you know um, result in the fact that you don't have to uh, have these tremendous insurance payouts or governmental uh, governments covering uh, road repairs and everything else. So I think that uh, there's a way to frame this in, in that it's a win-win situation. Indeed. Um, it's kind of like going to the dentist on a regular prudent schedule instead of relying on emergency, you know, operations or whatever. Or ending sure. up with dentures. <laughs> Those are good, but they're not as good as your original teeth. Um, I think we did have a question. Um, Tommy had one come yeah. in through radioplanetwatch at gmail.com. If you'd like to join that person in a question, we've got time for yours, hopefully. Yeah, Joe just talked about, or Joe and Rachel both talked about funding from the university, and um, we just got a question. As a researcher at a publicly funded university, do you feel threatened in your role as an environmentalist by the new Trump administration? And uh, are the... Chances are there chances that you will lose funding or face censorship? 
Well, um, I, I, at this point, I don't feel threatened. Of course, who knows with this particular administration. Um, you know, funding for this kind of science has, uh, or global change science in particular, has waxed and waned with different administrations. And in fact, in some of the uh, Republican administrations in the past have actually put a lot of funding into um, elevated CO2 impacts and climate change impacts on on various aspects of um, science and society, um, and partly because they wanted to uh, answer the question, is this really something we need to pay attention to? And, and in some cynical ways, that might have been thought of as a way to avoid action by studying it more. So I, I think it remains to be seen whether um, whether the uh, whether there's some um, threat, but uh, as far as uh, censorship, again, who knows uh, what may happen? I'm, uh, you know, we're all very concerned, of course, about uh, what's happening with uh, government scientists in in agencies like the EPA, um, and remains to be seen what happens with other agencies, um, and 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 as many of my colleagues will. Uh, tell you is uh, some fun funding is awfully tight to begin with, and so <laughs> <laughs> that uh, that whether the funding is cut off uh, you know, is, a, is a, again another question that remains to be seen. Of course, we hope not. Hmm. Good question. Hmm. I hope we get more like that, um, or more about the science itself. And um, back to that, I had a question about um, how you communicate as a scientist. This, and you're doing a great job, by the way. Oh, I thank think you. You're explaining things very clearly in a way most people would understand. There seems to be a cognitive um, dissonance or confusion um, in a lot of people's mind between, and I think you alluded to this earlier, changes in weather that are on more a yearly basis and long-term changes in climate. Mm -hmm. How do you help people like that who say, you know, I think it was James Imhoff, this senator who threw a snowball in the, <laughs> in the middle of Congress to right. show that, you know, look, it was a snowy year, there's no global warming. How do you communicate those differences as a scientist to the public to make that bridge a little easier for people to walk over? Well, it's an excellent question, and theres I don't think that there's one really good answer, unfortunately. Um, I think that the the outcome, I'm, I'm not sure this is going to answer your, your question, but I think the, the outcome of this election has made many of us sort of stop and think about um, where we get our information and how we communicate. And uh, certainly many of my colleagues are, are, are stopping to think about uh, how we reach um, people who may not necessarily live on uh, the first hundred miles of the West Coast um, and how we uh, communicate these kinds of issues to people. And there's been some some interesting conversations I've heard about. Um, one thing uh, is uh, talking to people about how they remember conditions used to be, um, and and bringing bringing their recollections into the discussion, and and making connections in that way. After uh, all, there yeah. were a lot of rural people who right. live very close to land and watch these changes in their gardens. Yeah, um, yeah. So in a way, their their everyday experience is sure. that things are not the same. Yeah, and I think we're I think we're seeing or we're hearing that you know there are people who work on the land who know a lot about the land who feel that the way that they are being communicated to is you know perhaps condescending or it's not um, it's not recognizing or valuing their their knowledge of how things work. Mm 
Right, right. And a lot of it's been politicized, too, or questioned, you know, the shoot the messenger um, kind of approach that, you know, you must be lying for personal gain if we don't like what you're saying, which has been a bit of a disturbing trend the past month. Uh, we've seen people who are very good at communicating both the facts and the realities um, attacked for what mm -hmm. they're saying. And so maybe fact isn't what's at stake here. It's the uh, politics underneath the facts. This is a really good place to interject something I wanted to say at the beginning of the program, namely, and we're talking facts versus lies, uh, happy Lincoln's birthday, everybody. Today is Abraham Lincoln's birthday, and, you know, he was known as Honest Abe. So the whole purpose of this show, by the way, is about getting truth out there into the public discussion sphere and uh, scientific truth in particular. So, uh, okay, we're doing what we can here. We're Give doing some our great part. folks. <laughs> the Fact Squad. Um, and yes, let me just remind you that you are listening to Planet Watch, and we're interviewing and speaking with Michael Loic. He is a professor of environmental studies at UC Santa Cruz out here in California. And he's talking about his studies with plants and as they respond to drought conditions, what that's telling us about wide swings that we might expect in the future and how that may affect uh, plant eaters like us. Let's not forget, still, most of our diet is plant-based. Another quick interject, and it's an ad for an excellent program at UC Santa Cruz uh, for summer uh, students who are about to come into college or in their last year of high school. And that's actually how I met Michael Loic way back in 2000 and 2001. Uh, they've had this program called COSMOS, which stands for California Summer Math and Science Academy or something like that. And uh, I think they, I just checked today and they're still doing that. I haven't taught it since 2001, but I put together a module on cl climate change and renewable energy. And we had Michael come in as one of our guest speakers, both of those years, I think. And uh, I don't know if you've been involved with Cosmos since then, but uh, a little bit. Uh, it's a great program. So you know, if you're in California uh, and you have kids who are college bound, check out that the, the applications are actually being taken now for another few weeks. I think so. Fantastic. I loved your answer about rural people understanding this better than you think they do because they're seeing changes mm -hmm. in climate and weather. And on the other side of convincing people that there's something real happening. These giant megastorms that have happened and big events, and you mentioned drought as one of those, uh, does succeed, it seems, in convincing large swaths of people. Hurricane Sandy seemed to be a turning point for lots of people who are on the edge of saying, well, it's just an isolated incident. Katrina, just an isolated incident. <laughs> and enough of them build up where there's giant heat events or anything you want to say, or giant tornadoes that aren't usually that large. Right. Um, people have enough personal experience. You don't, didn't really want to have to wait till every single person has a personal experience with climate change to believe it's mm -hmm. happening, but that does seem to be human psychology. Yes, and, uh, and, and I think that uh, one of the first times that, that I, and I totally agree with you, I think the first time that I kind of uh, noticed that was um, was with Katrina, Hur Hurricane Katrina, and uh, the aftermath in New Orleans and and neighboring Gulf state regions, and uh, and I think that there was uh, a large uh, um, form of public attention that that uh, saw that and was like, wow, you know, this maybe there is something about that, and that wasn't too too much uh, uh, later uh, than. Um, Al Gore's Inconvenient Truth, and I think those were two things that kind of happened close to one another that raised a lot of public awareness. 
We had a program. It was our first maiden voyage with um, Gary Griggs, mm-hmm. who studies uh, erosion on the coast. Sure. So another person who's ringing some alarm bells about where we're supposed to live and how it's going to change lives on the coast where lots of people live. So there are many scientists being very frank with us, and I appreciate their frankness because we don't really want to stick our heads in the sand, unlike ostriches who don't really do that, we learned in another program. (laughs) But back to your plant study. I don't want to get too far sidetracked. Other things you might have learned and, and which were your main plants that you studied, and what are they what are the plants telling us about right. droughts? Well, uh, we work um, near Mammoth Lakes, California, and our, our studies focus on how uh, differences in snowfall and rainfall in the summertime uh, affect vegetation and uh, how much water is available uh, to move downstream, much of which is then transported to the city of Los Angeles. Uh, So we work on uh, a couple of nondescript shrub species that turn out to be some of the most widespread species in the country. We work on some conifer trees and we work on tiny little wildflowers and we work on an invasive grass that's actually really important out there. It's called cheatgrass uh, and it's uh, uh, Latin name is Bromus tectorum, and it uh, it's problematic because the vegetation out there didn't evolve with this little grass, and this grass uh, acts like a fire fuel, and so fire burns much more prob- in a much more problematic manner out there when this uh, invasive grass is present, uh, and so uh, some of my graduate students in the past have worked on how uh, different forms of uh, climate change in the winter, changes in snow or in the summer, uh, changes in thunderstorm patterns might affect this grass and whether it'll grow more and thicker and thereby be a you know, a more problematic fire fuel or whether it'll move to higher elevations and, uh, and, and cause uh, a greater risk of fire in, in the forests at the higher elevations. And, um, and Mammoth Lakes is a recreational town. It's a year-round recreational town. It's like many recreational towns throughout the western U.S. Uh, in which, um, you know, the industry is based on, on uh, sustainable uh, nature-based uh, uh tourism and, uh, and and sustainable habitats. And so uh, despite the fact that wildfires may be a natural part of the landscape, they are very disruptive and of course they provide a lot of risk to, um, to lives and property. Um, and, uh, and then so and there's a lot of uh, disruption when they occur and, and, and frankly some people don't always want to go for a hike in, in, in a place where there's been a, a wildland fire. And one of your uh, research stations, uh, or the ones that you work at, which I've also been to actually over there, has the acronym SNARL. <laughs> Maybe you can tell us what that yeah. is. Yeah, that stands for Sierra Nevada Aquatic Research Laboratory, and it's one of the, the many uh, UC Natural Reserve uh, uh, research stations in the state is, uh, in my opinion, one of the uh, crown jewels of the University of California is these uh, 30 or so research sites uh, around the state in grasslands, forests, deserts, and so on. And um, yeah, this is a research station outside of Mammoth Lakes, and it has that kind of unusual name because of its uh, early days uh, studying uh, the aquatic research, uh, the aquatic uh, ecosystems in the mountains, the lakes and streams, and the, the fish, and and so on. 
Yeah, you hear the word aquatic, you think oceans in the Sierra, but no, lakes and streams. Well, it's yeah. not far from Mono Lake, which is, uh, right, of course, a, a really important body of water in eastern California for uh, bird flyways. Tell me, we have another question? Yeah, you just mentioned your graduate students, and we just got a question now. Have you noticed a difference in your science students in recent years, and uh, do they seem more activist in their perception of the important connections between politics and science and do we need scientist politicians to save the planet <laughs> oh, I, I really like that last question <laughs> do we need scientist politicians I think we need politicians who are um, well versed in science because uh, science is part of our daily lives in, in every form possible if you go to the doctor or if you use a cell phone those are uh, various forms or products or uh, aspects of science that we utilize on a day-to-day -day basis and so um, we need uh, well-informed politicians at all levels and a well-informed citizenry of course as well uh, let's see what was the other questions it was uh, do you see that in the see grad it? students being more um, concerned um, with politics? Uh, we have great graduate students in our program and uh, they're they're great scientists and they're great social scientists as well our department is uh, is unusual in that sense that we uh, are interdisciplinary and try and bring all of those skill sets together. Right, because so, we don't live just in isolation in the scientific community. You're also citizens, and you also have to look at your grandkids and say that they will have a life. Right. And Joe was talking last uh, show about the origins of the word environmentalist, and ultimately, um, if we breathe and drink water, we're <laughs> environmentalists. Because <laughs> without it, we'd be really living on the moon, which would not last very long. So I want to thank you so much for being here. If you'd like to stay for the rest of the show, maybe you'd like to chime in on some of our science quizzes. We'll test your knowledge. Uh -oh. <laughs> uh -oh. <laughs> maybe we'll only stay in the plant zone, but you never know. There might be some other um, tricky we'll quizzes. Give it a try. Yeah, thank you. Um, we've been speaking with Michael Loik. He is professor of environmental studies at the University of California, Santa Cruz, one of the great programs around the world in environmental studies. And he is studying how plants survive droughts or don't and what that means for the rest of us. So I, I appreciate your insight and thank you so much for being thank you. here. Yeah, thanks for coming. We'll have you back some other time for an update, you know. Climate, <laughs> climate might be changing so fast we'll be talking about yeah. completely different things. Yeah. Uh, tell me. Another, another yeah, question. we actually do have another question oh, for Oh, well, you can Michael. stay a little longer for one more question. <laughs> um, okay. Don't leave you out. Do you have any information and suggestions for activities to take part in here in the Santa Cruz County in support of the Earth Day March for Science, i.e. field trips, protests, or restoration work? Oh, restoration work, there's always, uh, that's, that's always a, a good way to be giving back. There's uh, lots of um, different opportunities around, and um, what we could probably do is um, have people get in touch with me through Joe maybe mm -hmm. um, for more specifics because I'm not sure we want to hand out emails over the <laughs> air right now. You can also go to uh, radioplanetwatch at gmail.com yeah. and we'll put okay. you in touch with Michael that if you're curious. That sounds great. Yeah. And there will be a lot of activities. Yeah, around. absolutely. And, and of course there will be the uh, March for Science events and that sort of thing too. All yeah. looking forward to it. Thank yeah. you. And thank you, Tommy. I've just decided I'm going to Washington, D.C. for both of those. It's two for the transportation costs of one. <laughs> one is on Earth Day, the 22nd, and then there's another one a week later on the 29th. I think one is a specifically climate one and the other is a March for Science. Hmm. But, well, uh, maybe you'll report back to the show um, 
do some live reporting from there. Yeah, I might have to do the show do live from the East Coast. That would be good to have a correspondent in D.C. for the Science March. Wonderful yeah. thing. All right, um, let's go on to our next segment. We always have a cool science quiz. And maybe this is a hot science quiz, given <laughs> the planet warming and everything. And by the way, you can email us your answers or other questions or things or whatever, you know, at that same address, radioplanetwatch at gmail.com. Thanks for those who have emailed in so far. Um, well, let's see. You know, I was trying to remember. I didn't have time to listen back to last week's show. I can't remember if I even did the quiz about the fish and how much it weighs. Yes, Does, you did. I yes. did. Okay, but I didn't answer it, did I? I well, don't we'll think, find out. I don't think we answered it. <laughs> we should take some notes on what we said. Yeah, I need to do this. remember minute to minute what well, we did say. Well, that, well, actually, the thing that I really hope you all did was the one about the un, uncapping a beer bottle or a Coke bottle um, and looking at the fog that's in the neck of the bottle. <laughs> Have you ever noticed that? When you uncork a bottle, sure. you get this cloud in there and it's because the sudden decompression lowers the temperature to minus 40 and you don't have to say centigrade or fahrenheit because that's the point where they're the same so that's a what i call a party fact well i hope a lot of you went and did that little uh, homegrown experiment uh but meanwhile the the little quiz arithmetic quiz from last week was a, a fish weighs 20 pounds plus half its weight how much does it weigh and if I did this right last week, I would have said, well, it's not 30 pounds, which I'm sure 95% of the listeners immediately thought is the answer. <laughs> but let me phrase the question in another way. Now, did I do it this way last week? I don't, hopefully I didn't do this. The, <laughs> the other, your memory? <laughs> the other way to ask the question is, a fish weighs 20 pounds plus the other half of its weight. How much does it weigh? <laughs> A fish weighs 20 pounds plus half its weight. How much does it weigh? Or a fish weighs 20 pounds plus the other half of its weight. What's its total weight? Okay, if there's another half that's equal to 20, then what's the answer? Anybody? 40. Any, 40. Oh, did we get a whole bunch of emails coming <laughs> in with the answers? <laughs> All right, well, actually, while we're on numbers, look, there's this movie, The Man Who Knew Infinity, about the great late mathematician from India, uh, just an amazing child prodigy who was discovered, you know, his mother sent to a great British mathematician. My son seems to be really doing amazing things. I don't know if it's baloney or if he's really onto something, and it turned out that uh, I think it was a guy named Hardy in Britain took this Indian young kid under his wing in Britain, and Ramanathan was the name of the guy. And unfortunately, he got TB or something in the climate of Britain, and he also wasn't feeding himself, taking care of himself. He was used to women, you know, sisters and moms doing that in India. So he died young, but on his deathbed, I think Hardy, or whoever this British mathematician, went to visit him. And uh, he said, well, I came over here in a taxi cab. It wasn't a very interesting number. <laughs> but Ramanathan sat up in bed and said, no, that's a very interesting number. It's the smallest number that can be expressed in two different ways as the sum of two cubes. You know, in other words, M cubed plus N cubed, where M and N are whole numbers. So that's your quiz. Find the smallest number that can be expressed in two different ways as the sum of two cubes. And that was the number of the taxi cab that the British mathematician had ridden <laughs> to the deathbed of Ramanathan. Or if you've seen the movie, uh, The Man Who Knew Infinity, I'm sure that's in there. But anyway, so, so that's uh, one little thing for you. Well, I have one. Um, oh, okay. What percentage of the Earth's surface 
which is meaning land, not water. The land surface is dedicated to crop growing. Anybody here want to guess? Well, I think I saw something recently, something on the order of 17% or something like that. No more than that. No, it's 11%. Okay. Oh. Amazing. I guess the one looked like a seven. That means we have forests still. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Good thing. And uh-huh. there's deserts, lots of deserts <laughs> that are not under any kind of arable, you know, mm-hmm. growth at the moment. At least that's what wise geek, clear answers to common questions. <laughs> and oh, the yeah. other interesting did you know, and this may be changing as people are more sedentary, but the average American walks the circumference of the earth four times in their life. <laughs> Unless you watch a lot of television, and not maybe one. <laughs> that, that makes you feel accomplished by the end. And if you just want to keep doing that, you might get around more. There, there's a guy that's walking the earth for National Geographic, and he's going to China next. And I can't wait to hear what he sees. Wow. He's literally doing every bit of the earth on foot. Except he must be on ships while he's walking the ocean. No. On, on ship decks. <laughs> you think? <laughs> He's on a treadmill. His, he's got a special aquatic suit. No. <laughs> now, here's actually a fun little thing for you. Um, you can go to this website, heavensabove.com. Heavens dash, like a minus sign, above.com. And you can put in your location. You can find out when you're going to see the space station go overhead. And some nights I've seen it come twice in the same night. I'm out showing people stars or whatever. You see it go over and you say, hey, there's people inside that bright dot up there. <laughs> you know, 300 miles up, they're falling around the Earth at 17,000 miles an hour without any propulsion, just sheer gravity and momentum. And then an hour and a half later, here they come again and they've just gone all the way around the planet. Now, they're in a different part of the sky the second time. Even though the orbit is the exact same orbit, guess what happened in that hour and a half? The Earth rotated out from under them. So that's feel why like they that look... all the time. But the, the <laughs> thing is, okay, what is the circumference of the Earth that Rachel just referred to? Don't shout it out. Uh, school kids all used to know this when I was a kid. I don't know about kids these days. But look, if somebody walked... If we have walked four times around the Earth, well, that means we've all walked 100,000 miles which means the circumference of the Earth is 25,000 miles. And, and this makes sense. If the space station's going, or any orbiting in low Earth orbit body is going at about 17,000 miles an hour, we'll figure it out. Then, you know, it takes uh, about an hour and a half to go 25,000 miles, the, the circumference of the Earth. So there you go. Amazing. Well, in the time we have left, um, somebody has another question. Yes. Since Michael's still here, if you don't mind, I know you're like on the <laughs> clock here and you probably have only got paid to answer questions up until quarter The of plants it. are out there growing. Y- yeah, Eugene just sent us a, a question from Columbus, Ohio. Um, I've heard that our major food crops, such as wheat, barley, rice, are quite sensitive to warming of the climate, uh, in particularly for some plants, is the warmer overnights rather than the hotter daytime temperatures mm-hmm. that cause more stress for the plants? Is that true for our food crops? Oh, that's an excellent question. Good job, Eugene, That uh, <laughs> noting that uh, that the night times are warmer. Um, you know, with the, the amount of management that our crops uh, have, in, in particular in uh, terms of irrigation, mm-hmm. um, they are probably not seeing a whole lot of uh, uh, stress. And, and also our agricultural system, at least our industrial agricultural system, is uh, is. Uh, pretty adaptable um, and can bring in new varieties and things like that. So I think that uh, the amount of warming that we've seen so far has been pretty much um, absorbed by the agricultural management system. 
Hmm. I, I've heard some other perspectives on the adaptability part um, because of the uh, paucity of diversity of seed stock um, sure. only held by five companies now, which makes me nervous. Hmm. Um, more of its susceptibility to disease than necessarily to temperature, but that may also be the case. And going back to the beginning of our show about the drones, you know, oh, your bees <laughs> die off, just make a mechanical bee. Um, your yeah, crops great. die off, make a mechanical, you know, make a GMO crop that can withstand global warming temperatures. It's a band-aid approach that science is getting better at, but it's disturbing that we're so good at saying, well, we'll just invent something that can tolerate you know this really hot climate but when are we going to invent it everybody else us and all the animals and everything that can't just adapt or be gmo'd out of the the problem right so that's a little bit of an editorial but it does go back to your question i think eugene about you know how are how are is our food source going to respond well i think that that's uh obviously an uh, what I was referring to is the fact that the amount of temperature change has been small enough so far that that the crops really haven't been that stressed. Um, moving forwards, though, it's going to be essential that we utilize the full spectrum of uh, genetic resources at our uh, at at our resource or at, you know that are available to us in all the seed banks of the world. Right. Diversity is a good thing. Yes. And, um, hey, you know, this is a good point happy. to interject some food-based palindromes. We did some palindromes last week, you know, words or phrases that are symmetric. So uh, here's a real quick one for all you Facebookers who like to tell everybody every single thing you've ever done. If you just ate a little bit of feta cheese, you put out on Facebook, ate feta. Feta spelled F-E-T-A. That's a palindrome. Ate <laughs> feta. Okay, here's another one now. Uh, these are two meat-based palindromes. One is, go hang a salami. I'm a lasagna hog. <laughs> now, you have to know how to spell lasagna. It's L-A-S-A-G-N-A. And here's another one. Um, slap a ham on Omaha, pals. <laughs> now, I like that because Omaha is famous for beef, but slap a ham on Omaha, pals. I have okay. another question for you. Maybe you'll know this one. What word um, that's kind of the opposite of this word it has the, all the same letters? L Listen. What's another word? Oh, I know. It has all the same letters in it. That's kind of the opposite. Well, oh, maybe oh. it's not the opposite. Maybe it's a complementary. <laughs> I'm going to remain. You know it. Oh, silent. Yeah. <laughs> Yay. What listen. is that called? Um, that I don't know. It? A word jumble. Well, an, an anagram. Anagram. Anagrams. Yeah, you just jumble it and words. spell a new word. But okay. yeah, exactly the same letters. Which is astounding. <laughs> we have a couple more minutes for one more sky observation plus an announcement. Uh, so if you want to... Um, okay. Well, minutes. I was at a big party last night um, and everybody was asking me, where can I see the green comet? And there is, there is a green comet. Yeah. And the thing is, okay, first of all, you got to get up early in the morning, you know, <laughs> pre-dawn, oh, dark 30. And you need binoculars. I mean, you know, you're not going to just look up there and see it like Hale Bob or anything. So, but, um, and it's, it made its closest approach to the Earth just a couple of days ago, and it was moving so fast relative to us, it moved through like a couple of constellations in a matter of hours. And uh, it's not quite doing that now, but it's uh, still in the early morning sky, I'm pretty sure. But if you want to be really sure, check uh, earthsky.org or spaceweather.com <laughs> And you've been listening to Planet Watch. I'm Rachel Goodman along with Joe Jordan. Thank you so much for Thanks tuning in. Thanks to Tommy in. and Michael and Jason our engineer. Yay! <laughs>
We appreciate you listening. You can always write to us at radioplanetwatch at gmail.com. Stay tuned for more science weirdness, facts, and fun next week right here on Planet Watch. We'll be having some members of the scientific community coming to our area to talk about climate change in the big conference at UC Santa Cruz. Stay tuned for that and more on Planet Watch. When two devastating storms struck the island of Madagascar, they wiped out a railroad line which was crucial to the local populace. Seeking a low-tech solution to restore the railroad, scientists turned to plants. I'm Jim Metzner, and this is The Pulse of the Planet. Karen Freudenberger is regional director of Madagascar's FCE Railroad Rehabilitation. In order to reopen the railway line, we really had to look at all aspects of operation because everything was dysfunctional. Once the cyclones had gone through, the drainage didn't work at all. The tracks had been buried and ties were starting to rust. So we started with drainage because in terms of protecting the line from future cyclone damage, that was absolutely essential. And then we started to look at how we could stabilize the slopes because it goes through this very mountainous area to make sure that the next heavy rainstorm, we didn't have the same types of problems. And in looking at that, we looked at a whole array of solutions. The conventional engineering solutions would call for putting up major masonry walls in order to hold back some of those steep and erosion-prone hillsides. But we didn't have money to do that, so we looked at some alternative technologies that are being developed around the world. And in particular, we looked at a plant called vetiver, which has incredible soil stabilization properties because its roots grow 9 to 10 feet deep and very quickly and create a wall of roots that goes down through the soil and acts almost in the same way that tensile steel would if you put in a steel wall to hold up that hillside. Planting vetiver on the steep slopes alongside the railroad tracks curbed further erosion and enabled Madagascar's engineers to reopen the railroad line. Pulse of the Planet is made possible in part by Virginia Tech, inventing the future through a hands-on approach to education and research.